Well, we are going to continue our teaching series uh, called Conversations with Jesus. What we've been doing, uh, for those of you who haven't been a part of this, is we have been visiting passages in the Gospels, mostly in Luke, but a few other Gospels as well, where Jesus has a conversation with somebody. And we've kind of been asking, what can we learn from these conversations that Jesus has with others about how we are called to be in the world in some way, of course, because we are followers of Jesus. So today, we're going to continue that series. I'm going to pick it up in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. If you have a Bible, you are welcome, of course, to turn there, or we, as always, will put the words of the passage up on the screen. Uh, And uh, we're going to take a look at this familiar passage where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And in the midst of that healing, which in and of itself is very interesting, we could talk about that uh, all day, we're actually going to take a look at the exchange that Jesus has with some of his uh, accusers, people who don't see things the way that he does. Uh, But before we jump into that, would you just take a moment and pray with me as we get started? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to gather. We thank you for every person in this room and every person online on Facebook and YouTube who is a part of this community of people who are trying to learn what it means to follow after Jesus in a generous way in our world. We ask that you would continue to speak to our hearts in a fresh way, that as we read these words, Uh, and examine them and imagine how they could apply for our lives today, we ask that you would do something in us, that you would inspire us, that you would uh, strip away perhaps old paradigms or concepts that have proven to be unhelpful, uh, that we would learn to follow you wherever you go, uh, even when that is a bit uncomfortable. We pray that you would do a grace in us today as we read this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 begins and says this, One day while he was teaching, he of course being Jesus, one day while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And when the power of the Lord was with him to heal, and just then... Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed, and they were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, friends... Excuse me, friend, your sins are forgiven. And then the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, Who is this who's speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their questions, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them and took what he had been lying on, and he went to his home, glorifying God. And amazement seized all who were with them, and uh, they were all filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. 
This is, of course, a familiar passage. Uh, it's a passage where uh, you have the gospel writer Luke retelling this story of a group of friends who bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. Jesus is, of course, known for healing. He's attracted a lot of attention for doing this sort of thing. Uh, but they encounter difficulty in bringing their friend to Jesus. And this part of the story is really, I think, interesting and touching and is worth just dwelling on for a moment. That this group of people who presumably were friends or family with this man who is paralyzed, who is utterly debilitated in his life, they hear that there's a possibility for healing for their friend. And they go out of their way to make arrangements to try to bring their friend to help, to some kind of relief. I don't know what these people did every day. I don't know what their jobs were. I don't know how busy they were or were not. But whatever it was that occupied their day-to-day -day lives, I'm sure that it wasn't piling their friends on you know, stretchers and then carrying their friends to a, another house in the village or the town and then ripping apart a roof to lower their friend down so that that person could have access to healing. That's a lot. That is going way above and beyond what is sort of normally considered the duty or obligation of a friend or maybe even a family member. Uh, I have friends and family members, and perhaps you do too, who have chronic issues in their lives. They have chronic physical uh, issues. They have chronic mental health issues. And one of the things that happens in those kinds of relationships is that when you have an intention to help and then discover that your intention to help is not enough, that, that their need is a bottomless pit of dysfunction and debilitation and unwellness, whatever their issues might be, when it's not enough for you to meet those problems, that it's very easy to just disengage. And it is, of course, very easy for people who suffer from chronic conditions, whatever those issues are, for them to be just as frustrated, if not more, by their inability to be easily helped. And so it creates a lot of expectation and frustration and guilt and dysfunction in relationships. This is especially true in my experience of family members uh, who suffer from very serious problems, uh, whether it's addiction uh, or maybe just like toxic dysfunction relationally. After a while, you get burned out and you just begin to distance yourself from folks like that. And sometimes that's necessary, like those boundaries can be really important, really healthy. But it occurs to me that whatever the story is here with this man, that this group of people, this group of friends and family, they came and they persevered past all of the initial obstacles. They persevered past the crowds. The distance may be that they had to travel before they got to the crowd. And then once they encountered the crowd, they uh, undertook a creative solution. If a group of people tore my roof apart in order to lower like a sick person into the room so that we could pray for them, I might be a little annoyed. In fact, I would be like, listen, <laughs> Uh, this, this is violating my boundaries. You don't get to destroy my home in order to find help for your friend. The, the point, of course, is that they show incredible faith. 
And Jesus commends them for that in verse 20. He says, when he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's also a curious portion of this passage. Jesus sees the incredible faith, the perseverance of the man's friends and responds by saying to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, remember, they didn't come to Jesus so that this man's sins could be forgiven. But Jesus perceives that in the midst of this event, that there is something going on that is beyond this man's material needs. So he's suffering from some kind of chronic condition that's causing him to be paralyzed, but Jesus sees past that and sees that there is another dynamic at work, that this man is in need of forgiveness, which is understandable, I think, for all the reasons I mentioned before. Who knows what kind of relational difficulties and uh, sort of dysfunctions were surfaced in this person's life because of their chronic need. Jesus perceived that this man was carrying a burden of unforgiveness and that he needed to be relieved of that. So Jesus compassionately, astutely, uh, in a very emotionally intelligent way, simply recognizes that this man has a need in addition to his physical needs. That whole scene is really worth reflecting on. What does that say about what it means to be a good friend? What does it say about what it means to be a good family member? What does it say about God that the person that we consider to be God incarnate perceives this person's physical and non-physical needs and reaches out to meet them? But that is not the point of our series. The question is, what's the conversation here? And here is where we get to verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, friends, your sins are forgiven. And then verse 21, then the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? The conversation begins when the experts in the law accuse Jesus of taking on authority that does not belong to him. In verse 22, we see how Jesus responds to this accusation. And this is where I think it gets helpful for us from this perspective. Jesus perceives their questions and he answers them with a question, which is a very Jesus thing to do, right? He is accused by the experts of the law of doing something wrong. And instead of simply answering them in a straightforward way, he responds with another question. When Jesus perceived their questions, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Which of these is easier? To solve somebody's non-physical, non-material needs or to solve their physical, material needs? Jesus' question what is easier reveals at least three things that I think are helpful. First, his question reveals that they don't know how to do either. They ask him, who gave you authority to forgive? And he says, well, which is easier to forgive someone's sins or to heal them? They have no answer for that because they don't know how to do either. 
He recognizes that they're not really asking a sincere question. This is not a good faith dialogue about God and grace and goodness and healing. This is another attempt to trap him. So he asks them, well, in your experience, is it easier to forgive somebody or is it easier to heal their physical needs? They have no answer because they don't do either. So Jesus reveals, I think, the hypocrisy in their question. He also reveals the bifurcation of the spiritual and the physical. Jesus' question, which is easier, shows that they have separated what should not be separated. Each of us is a whole person, physical, spiritual, and those things are not separate. They are integrated. Who you are physically is who you are spiritually. And who you are spiritually is what you are physically. Those things are deeply integrated together. When we are suffering from a chronic illness, for example, it deeply affects our spiritual health. We know that that's true. We can't help but be burdened and frustrated and angry and full of bitterness and anger that comes out in ways that are oftentimes dysfunctional for ourselves and others. Part of being human is that these things affect each other. And the same, of course, is true in the reverse. When we struggle emotionally and mentally, it affects our physical health as well. We'd like to separate these things, but they really aren't able to be neatly separated. The third thing that Jesus does when he asks this question is he reveals their lack of sincerity in providing this person with actual help. Imagine this. Somebody comes along and they receive some kind of relief for their suffering, some kind of help for their their pain, some kind of healing from their illness, some kind of filling for their emptiness. And somebody standing by says, yeah, but you didn't do that the right way. Well, you probably can't imagine that because that happens all the time. And in doing this, Jesus reveals that their concern is really not for this man's well-being at all. They don't care that this man is being unburdened of his lack of forgiveness. They don't care that this man is chronically ill and paralyzed, just like they didn't care that Jesus and his followers were hungry when they walked through the fields of grain and they picked the grain and the experts in the law accused them of breaking the Sabbath. See, the issue here is not meeting real human needs. The issue here is that they are using the law to justify themselves. For them, that is what their spirituality is all about. Their relationship with God, their worship, their understanding of the law, their way of relating to each other, everything about it is engineered to establish their own justification. I am okay. Whether you are okay or not is entirely between you and God. 
This is a consistent theme with the experts in the law. They have twisted and altered and interpreted and applied their very good religious practices in a way that privileges them. By healing the man and then forgiving his sins, or by forgiving his sins and then healing them, Jesus shows that God's concern is for people's real needs. God is concerned about this man's healing, both physical and spiritual. Jesus reveals that the impulse to separate the physical and the spiritual more often than not is an attempt to abdicate our responsibility to help others. This is how this goes. Which is harder, to rekindle someone's hope or to solve their homelessness? Which is harder, to instill a sense of self-worth or to cure someone's addiction? Which is harder, to liberate someone from their xenophobic fear or to end systemic racism? These things are not separable. These things are integrated realities. And when Jesus asks which is harder, he reveals that these real issues in our lives are deeply ingrained in our material and our non-material existence. The answer, of course, is they're all hard. It's really hard to heal people's physical unwellness. It's really hard to forgive or to help people be forgiven. It's really, really hard to solve intractable social problems like homelessness or addiction or systemic racism. And it's really, really hard to instill in people a sense of hope and dignity, a sense of self-worth that helps them to be liberated from those realities. All of this is really hard. Jesus' question is not meant to make light of how easy these things are. On the contrary, Jesus' question is to point out that these things are difficult, and in the face of their difficulty, when we are faced with people's real, intractable problems, our tendency is to withdraw. When we see how complex and wicked, truly wicked, people's interpersonal and social problems are, we want nothing to do with it. And so we step back, we disengage, we abandon, we ignore. And more often than not, we create philosophies and theologies that allow us to separate their spiritual problem from their material problem. Because if we can do that, we can say that their spiritual problem is God's problem. And if their spiritual problem is God's problem, then it's not my problem. That's exactly what's happening here. When the experts of the law say only God can forgive, what they're saying is, this man's problems are not mine. And to that, Jesus might have said very easily, you are your brother's keeper. Instead, he does something else. He demonstrates that by the power and the grace of God, 
however difficult these problems are, they can be solved. First, he forgives the man's sins. Whatever those sins are, I don't know. Jesus is not saying that his sins are the cause of his illness. He's simply saying that this man has a deep problem beyond his physical paralysis. And he forgives him. And then, in order to show that this is within his power and authority to do, he also heals the man's paralysis. The point here is not that we relegate these problems to God. The point here is that by the grace and the power of God, these problems can be resolved. Elsewhere, Jesus might say it something like this. These are difficult problems, but with God, all things are possible. When Jesus elsewhere says, with God, all things are possible, he is saying, with God. You and me working together with God. That as God pours God's grace out, God's power, God's authority out on any given situation, that you and I have power and authority to address these issues if we're willing, like this man's friends, to make it our problem too. If we're willing, like this man's friends, to carry that burden to whatever extent we actually can. This does not mean, by the way, that all the problems in the world are your job to solve. And some of you really need to hear that because you find your identity in trying to solve other people's problems. Or maybe you do see the complexity of some of these social issues and you see opportunities for making some kind of a difference and so you carry that responsibility entirely on your own. That is not what Jesus is demonstrating here. What it does mean is that like Jesus and like the paralyzed man's friends, we are called to pass along whatever grace we have received. When someone in our life enters into our lives and they have a need that we really can meet. When the grace that they are desperately lacking is a grace that we have received in abundance. Then we are called to pass that along. Sometimes this might look overcoming barriers to help somebody access healing. It might mean picking up the phone and making phone calls. It might mean connecting them to people who have the real ability to solve their very real physical problems. Or it might look simply like ministering forgiveness to someone who's suffering from a burden of guilt. And maybe you know how to do that. If you don't know how to do it, then don't. But if you do... If you have the grace to offer somebody the ability to unburden themselves of their guilt and you know how to offer that grace and somebody in front of you needs it, then the authority is yours. Do it. Or in a church like this, it might mean 
joining with others in solidarity to slowly, persistently pursue policy changes that would bring about grace and goodness and relief for others in the community on a systemic level. All of these things are ways that God has empowered us to pass along the grace that we have received. The point is that God is not our excuse for doing nothing. And that is what the experts in the law were doing. They had carved out a special theological exception and made God the excuse for not helping this man. God is not our excuse for doing nothing. God is our source for doing something. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for this opportunity for us to come together to read these words, to be challenged by your example. to reflect on the problems in our lives and in the lives of people that we know that are deep and difficult and intractable, complicated and wicked. And we just confess to you that we do not often know how to address those issues. But we also know from experience that there are plenty of times when we might have the grace that someone needs. For, so those, for those situations, we pray that you would just open our eyes to see when you've called us to speak a word of forgiveness. When you've called us to connect someone to the healing or the health care that they need to advocate for someone in a difficult situation. Would you give us the eyes to see that? Would you give us the courage to act and to speak? And would you give us, like this man's friends, the faith to know that it is possible? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everyone, hey. how you doing? So a couple quick announcements before we head out today. If you like what you saw today, if you're new, if you want to get more involved, we have some opportunities for that. The first one is we are having our new dinner and dialogue groups starting in October and November. Can I get a round of applause for that? All right. This is a really big deal. We've been working on this for a really long time. We're really excited. We have class, not class. We have groups meeting Monday through Friday and Sunday in Laguna Hills, uh, Carlsbad, Oceanside, all over the place. This is a great way for you to get together, make new friends, create dialogue and process your faith journey together. So I really recommend if you're new or if you're just feeling like, I want to get to know people a little more. Go to our website. We've got some amazing hosts and you're going to love it. Next up, we have our outgrowing immature religion class. 
very famous class started by Jason. It's a really fun class if you feel like you're struggling with processing your faith, if you feel like you've outgrown some paradigms that no longer work for you, Jason does an amazing job of creating a safe space to really discuss those things. So that's for six weeks and it starts on this Tuesday at 6.30. And lastly, I think a lot of you guys got some flyers. We have a candidate forum for our upcoming city council election in November. So this is happening uh, at St. John Church. It is October 6th at 6.30 p.m. This is really your chance to kind of interview, get to know the local candidates who are running here in Oceanside. So we are not advocating for Democrat or Republican. We're simply asking you to get to know the people, get to know the issues, because we really care about that here at this church. And lastly, if you'd like to support our mission, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. You can go online. There's also giving boxes at the front doors on your way out of the building. So may the peace of God be with you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.